I think one, uh, one thing that would kind of summarize at least part of the message very well is from Heidelberg, the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one, you've heard it before. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. So with that as an introduction, I'm going to read uh, John 10. Please remain seated while I ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word uh, toward the end. This is John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them all, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and his sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not the shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Would you please stand at this time for the reading of the rest of God's inspired word. Verse 18. Verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Amen. Please be seated. May God truly add his blessing to the reading of his word. 
So this chapter does not tell us everything about Jesus, everything about this relationship we have, but it tells us many, many important things about Jesus. He is a good shepherd. He is a protecting shepherd. He's a caring shepherd. I just want to start by reminding us that um, God is, is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. He was and is and is to come. This, is, this chapter doesn't mention those things. And it doesn't mention many other of the attributes of Christ. But what it does tell us here, what we learn here, is what you need to know for this night, for this day. It tells us about our good shepherd. Our good shepherd. So why do we even need a shepherd? It's an interesting question, uh, and it alludes to the question of evil. Why is there evil in the world? Why does the almighty, all-powerful, omniscient God even allow evil? Well, this is a question that Christians have asked for thousands of years. And the answer is, I don't know. Nobody knows for sure, except that what the, the Word of God tells us, that our God is mighty and powerful. All things are done for his glory. So in some way, this, this evil displays the glory of God and the goodness of our God. Would we need a shepherd if there were not threats to the sheep? Would we need a shepherd if we didn't need to be led? So in one sense, we see that God allows evil, indeed has ordained that there be evil in the world for the reason of glorifying his holy name. And that's really the setting, the backdrop to all of this chapter is that there are thieves and robbers and wolves and stealing and killing and destroying. All this is going on and we need a shepherd. When did it start? Of course, it started in Genesis 3, in the very beginning, when Adam and Eve chose to listen to the serpent rather than to listen to God in rebellion against God. They rejected his word. So God spoke to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 and said, I will put enmity between you, speaking to Satan, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this will continue. It was speaking specifically of Christ coming to bruise the head of Satan, to stop the work of Satan, the, the, the dominating influence of Satan on the earth. But it also speaks generally just of the experience of the church, of each one of us, of the church universal as well. We see this in the book of the Revelation, the beast pursuing the woman um, and God protecting the woman. We see Paul alluding to uh, this promise in the end of his letter to the Romans, Romans 16, 20, where he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The church is, is still being pursued by Satan. And Paul sees that God is going to use the church to crush Satan. And we see this actually happening ever since Christ returned. The, the word of God has flown up over all the earth. It's been a tidal wave of gospel, good news. And it will continue until the end of time that the church grows as the God of peace continues to crush Satan 
under our feet. But that doesn't mean that the thieves and the robbers and that Satan isn't real and isn't still after his church. It's a result of the fall and the bride of Christ will always be pursued by the roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's why Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. God has allowed it for his own good purposes, of course. But we know that we have an enemy, a roaring lion. It's manifested in churches. It's manifested in our lives with false teachers and false shepherds and even false sheep. You know, when I was a kid, I actually still like it. Um, I would love to get up on Saturday mornings because do any of you remember this? The Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show. It was three and a half hours. It was 9 a.m. to 12.30 and I was in kid heaven because my parents said I could watch it and I wasn't allowed to watch much TV. What was really happening was they were sleeping in on Saturdays. They were just like, Richard, you can watch Bugs Bunny. So I would turn it on at nine o'clock and just sit there for three hours. One of my favorite skits was always the, sh- the sheepdog sitting up on the hill, looking out over the sheep. And you'd see, you'd see the wolf put the, sh- the sheep clothing on and hop over to the sheep and then whatever, take it and steal it. And the sheepdog just comes over with a sledgehammer and grabs the sheep back. It's hard for me not to imagine the futility of Satan and his efforts and not think of that cartoon. It actually is that futile because no one can snatch the shepherd's sheep out of his hand. He sees everything. And the sheepdog is actually a great, kind of a great way to think about it because we don't see Christ. We don't actually see the physical Christ ruling and reigning over his church visually, physically sitting on a throne somewhere on the earth. So it seems like he's not present. It seems like he's not paying attention if you're if you're not thinking scripturally. But he's actually always present. He sees it all. He's like the sheepdog. The hair's over his eyes. It looks like he's not watching. He sees everything. So we have a good shepherd. And Satan is the great counterfeit. He's He counterfeits as a teacher. He counterfeits as a false shepherd. He counterfeits as a sheep. Pretending to be all that God is. We saw that in the fall, in the garden as well. He offered false wisdom and false power, false comfort, false justice and goodness and truth. It's all false. In Revelation 17 and 18, we see Babylon the Great described. And in chapter 20, 21, 22, we see the New Jerusalem described. So there's this this picture, this dichotomy. The New Jerusalem is God's people. It's the church, the bride of Christ. And on the flip side is, is the counterfeit. It's the Babylon. And Babylon is described in Revelation 17 as uh, a woman um, who's dressed in gold and scarlet and holding a cup of gold. And she's bedazzled in jewels. And yet the cup is full of the blood of the saints. She's out to kill, steal, and destroy the bride of Christ. So that's the setting. The setting is the world we live in. It's a place where the kingdom of God is advancing and will continue to advance until our Lord comes. But it's a place where Satan still has influence. So what do we learn about our shepherd? Well, first we learn that 
um, the first thing I want to bring out is that the shepherd is the door. Our shepherd is the door. We see this in verse 7, verses 2 and 3, verse 9. He who enters by the door, this is verse 2, is the shepherd of the sheep. Tim, the gatekeeper, opens. The sheep hear his voice. Verse 7, Jesus said, I am the door, truly, truly. In other words, exclamation point, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. These I am statements, by the way, are emphatic. Um, you remember the name of God when Moses saw the burning bush and he went over to investigate and he says, who will I tell them sent me? And God says from the bush, tell them I am has sent me. That's been the name of God. I am that I am. Well, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So think about that. The Old Testament translated by a bunch of Jewish rabbis into Greek. They translate that phrase, I am, ego, ami. Ego, I, ami, am. Well, in Greek, you don't need to say ego, ami. You just need to say ami. The pronoun is assumed based on the verb tense. It's kind of like the Romance languages, right? So, all you need to say is Amy. Amy, the bread of life. Amy, the good shepherd. Amy, the door. So, when Jesus says, Ego, Amy, which is what the Greek says, Ego, Amy, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. He's making a truth claim that he's God. And we know that's true because they all stone him. They want to stone him after he, he finishes preaching. He just said, ego a me about six times. When the ego isn't required, he's saying, I am, I am. So that's a side note, but this shepherd is also the door. He's the door. He says, I am the door of the sheep. You know, there's a number of books. Philip Keller wrote a book about uh, shepherds. He was a shepherd and then he, became a pastor and he wrote a book about being a shepherd and all the, the, the wonderful things we learned just from real shepherds that probably were known by everyone uh, whom Jesus was speaking to. But today we don't know too many shepherds, so we just don't understand all of the things he's alluding to. But the door, to say I am the door, you might think of just a wooden door or something like that. Well, what he's probably referring to is the fact that the shepherd would actually kind of lay down in front of the opening. So there'd be an opening and he would let all the sheep in. And then once all his sheep are in, he would get in front of the door and just kind of lay there and stay there all night and keep them. He was the door. And no one gets in to the sheep pen except by that entrance. So he was actually the door. And one of these shepherds who forgotten his name, he wrote a book about being a shepherd as a Christian. And he was actually in the Middle East and he was living with a shepherd. That's what it was. He lived with a shepherd for six months and then wrote a, a dissertation. And he saw that happening. They would build a little sheep pen and there would be just a little opening. And there was a, a larger place with fences and gates but this was where they slept, so he would get them in there and he would lay down in front of the door. 
And he asked him, well, can anyone come in here? And he said, no one. The shepherd's talking. This Middle Eastern shepherd. He said, no one can come into this place except over my dead body. This is for my sheep. And it just struck him. There are certainly counterfeit doors that look appealing. The wide road at first glance seems amazing, but it only leads to death. The narrow road and narrow gate leads to life. The narrow gates. Now only, only a few find it, but our shepherd is also our door. He's the way in. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He's the door. In verse 3 and also 14 and 15, we see that this shepherd knows his sheep. He calls them by name. Verse 3, he says, The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. This is, this is personal, isn't it? The shepherd knows individually each sheep by name. He's always known your name, actually. As Brent said this morning, there's never been a time in your life when you have not been loved by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. He's always known your name if you're in Him. This is in great contrast, isn't it, to the Roman and Greek gods of the day when Jesus was alive. These gods were unpredictable if you've ever studied Greek mythology. I mean, what a mess. They're unpredictable gods. They don't know everything. They're not good even. But they're certainly not personal. They're just to be feared and cowered before. And yet, our God knows our names. He knows us so well, like a good shepherd. He knows each name. One of the other things that shepherds, it's always been noticed, I think. Um, I'm thinking just of old Western movies. When shepherds were moving through the West, the cowboys didn't like it. They wanted cattle. Shepherds brought sheep and ruined the country, they thought. But a shepherd walks into the bar or the saloon, and what's the first thing the cowboy says? Something smells bad. Like shepherds always smelled like their sheep. They're so close to them. They spend so much time with them. And our shepherd, he's like that. He knows us well. He knows everything about us. He spends time with his own sheep. And this relationship, Jesus compares to the relationship between the Father and the Son. Amazingly. It's a relationship that we have with Jesus Christ that's of infinite value. And it's also a mystery. When he says that our union with Christ is like the union between the Father and the Son, he's referring to the Trinity. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And later in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been eternally in an infinitely perfect fellowship and relationship forever. And they always will be. And this perfect love and harmony and fellowship and contentment, he says, 
This is what it's like to be part of my flock because of the shepherd. It's amazing. And you think, well, I'm not, I'm not that good. I'm not good enough. I'm not a good sheep. I'm the one that's always trying to break out. God doesn't really love me. I haven't read my Bible in a week. I haven't prayed in a month. Don't know the love of your shepherd. All right, we see in verse 9 and 10 that our shepherd also gives us abundant life. It's a precious, precious promise that we, because of Christ and because we are part of his flock, we have abundant life. In verse 9, we see that anyone who enters by him, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. So he he leaves the sheepfold and he goes out into the pasture and comes back. He's finding good pasture. It's the picture of a shepherd who's raising a flock and they're, they're just all thriving and getting fat. They're eating such good grass and they're so well exercised. They're growing. He says the, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but he comes to give life and to give it abundantly. This abundant life is all related to the shepherd. It's about being with the shepherd. It's about listening to the shepherd's voice. This isn't talking about the health and wealth gospel. This isn't you become a Christian, you're in the flock of of Jesus, the good shepherd, and all of a sudden you get wealthy and healthy and wise. It's referring to spiritual a spiritual reality that um, is only valuable to those in the flock. We have a spiritually abundant life. Certainly our lives in this flock aren't free from difficulty, but we're free from fear and free from despair. We don't fear death. We don't fear man. We only fear God, and he's a loving father. The abundant life then isn't a lack of hardship, but it's having a good shepherd, a shepherd who prepares a table before us, even when we're surrounded by enemies. A shepherd who, while we're surrounded by enemies, anoints our heads with oil. Who causes our cup to overflow. This is a shepherd who who leads us and guides us. And we realize that even in the valley of the shadow of death, we're not alone. And it's not that our shepherd has, has kicked us into the valley. He's led us through the valley. He's with us. He's comforting us. He's leading So this is abundant life. It's being near the shepherd. It's being with them. As Paul says in Romans 8, who will separate us from the love of God? This is abundant life. It's knowing that we are loved by God. This is a life of quiet confidence. It's a life of of ordinary Christian living, but an extraordinary inheritance and attitude about this task he's given us on this earth. We know the end and we know the power of our shepherd. We know his love for us and his fellowship. So this is abundant life indeed. And we live with our eyes fixed on our shepherd. Number four, though, we see the shepherds or we hear the shepherd's voice. In other words, this is a shepherd who speaks to his his sheep. He speaks to us. 
They know my voice. They know my voice. He says it again and again. They know my voice. My sheep hear my voice. They don't listen to the false shepherds, but they, the thieves and the robbers, they only listen to me, to my voice. And by listening to the voice of Jesus, by staying close to him, you hear his voice. To stretch that metaphor a little bit farther, listening to his voice means being close. I remember uh, how confusing it was the first time um, I had to fly with uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of other aircraft on the same frequency. We had two or three radios, depending on the aircraft we were in. And so you're listening to two radios, everyone speaking at the same time, everyone thinking that what they have to say is the most important thing, especially if you're in a stressful situation, everyone wants to talk. Well, how do you know what to do? How do you, how do you know where to go and what's important? Well, as a good wingman, you learn very, very quickly. Listen to the voice of your flight lead. Listen to him. If you could recognize the voice of your flight lead, then the rest of it you, you listen to, but you can kind of tune out. It helps you prioritize what's important. And hopefully you have a flight lead who, who has a very distinctive voice or some kind of accent that you can pick up on. Well, we have a flight lead. We have a, a shepherd whose voice is, is easy to understand and hear, and it's because it's all here. He doesn't speak apart from this. When you read the Bible, when you study and meditate on the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit uses the Scriptures and He speaks to you. Through the Scripture, the Scripture is impressed on your heart. I'm not talking about impressionism, this God told me. I had a dream last night and God told me, you need to sell me your car. That's, if anyone ever says anything like that to you, God told me this about you, or God said to me to do this, I mean, almost, almost tune them out. God speaks through his word. Now, if someone came up to me and said, God told me that I need to, to shine brightly for God in his kingdom, I would say, amen. And he's told me that too. Like, it's not specific. It's not specific to you. It's something we all get from the word of God. And he can use that word more powerfully in your life at one time than another. But we're to listen to the voice of our shepherd. Everything hinges in some ways on listening to the shepherd's voice. How are we going to be safe? We stay close to the shepherd and hear his voice. How do you know the shepherd? Well, you read the word often. You hear his voice often. The read and preached and studied and meditated on and memorized word. Our shorter catechism says the spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. The Spirit of God makes the Word powerful in your life. He impresses the Word of God on your heart. He brings it to memory when it needs to be brought to memory. And He reminds you of everything that the shepherd has said. And by immersing your whole life around the Word of God and in the Word of God, you're transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and discern what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So the Holy Spirit is our comforter and our instructor, and he makes the voice of the shepherd in his word resonate. 
and comfort us. Fifthly, in verse 16, we see that the shepherd's voice and the shepherd's presence brings unity. The shepherd is one who unites. He unites his people. Jews and Gentiles, he's talking about bringing other people in who are not of the sheepfold. He's talking about the Gentiles. They're going to be brought in. It's the vast majority of the American church are folks who are grafted in to this line of Abraham. And we are now sons and daughters of Abraham. We're brought into the same sheepfold. We're not kept in a separate one. We're in the same one. There's no more court of the Gentiles as there was in the temple courts. The Gentiles had to stay on one side and the the Hebrews got to go into another. That's all over. Now we're all together. And we see also that false teachers and false shepherds and the enemy, the deceiver, still tries to bring disunity into the, the church. The universal church seems very divided. But we thank God that he is the good shepherd. This is his church. This is his body. And he's doing with it as he, as he desires and pleases. One of the things that um, Brent and Bunny said um, this afternoon as we fellowshiped with them was that they love Meadow Creek because it's a place where they can tell we love each other. There's an actual unity. Um, and they know as well as we all know that this is just a gift. It's a gift from God. It hasn't always been the case of Meadow Creek. Um, but it has been for the the past few years, and praise God for that. But it's also something that we actually have to actively preserve and and care for and watch out for. How do we do that? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We need to love. We love each other. And when we fail, we forgive. We seek unity before we seek our own, our own will and our own way. This unity is something that has to be protected because we have enough enemies outside seeking to destroy without having to find enemies within. So specifically, we desire the unity that comes from the Holy Spirit. We use the word of God, and that helps us to see this bride of Christ as precious, and each person in this body as precious. And then we pursue that. We pursue that by applying the promises of the word of God to those situations and to each other. This is a a shepherd who brings unity to his flock. We listen to the same voice, so it must Sixthly, we see that the shepherd protects his flock. Our shepherd is a protector. He never leaves the sheep. He never runs away. Praise God. We see this in verse 11 and 12 and 14. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand runs away. He doesn't care for the sheep. But he says, I'm the good shepherd. We still see enemies and brokenness and suffering in the world and in church. But this is all temporary because... The shepherd who protects us is coming again to glorify his holy name. And he came the first time as a servant, as a slave, but he's coming again as the king. But he's delaying. He's delaying for reasons that are his. We know one of those reasons, though, is 
to bring in the remaining remnant of the sheep and the flock. But for us who are here, the church militant, often it does feel like the other side's winning. Sometimes it does feel like the enemy is gaining ground. The reality, though, is that our God reigns and our Lord is protecting us. Right now, all of God's glory and majesty, the full measure of all of his sovereign power, is being applied to each one of us and to his church, all of it. We should remember that he protects us. Jesus is right now interceding for the saints. I remember um, a few weeks ago, uh, John MacArthur, I played this for the Wednesday study, that the most comforting thing in our lives is the gospel. But more than that, it's that Jesus Christ is presently at this moment interceding for us, for his sheep that he loves at the father's side. So he protects us in all things. And if anything happens that seems out of hand or out of joint, Satan, his designs are really actually being used for God's holy purposes because he's always protecting his remnant and always will. And there's nothing that Satan can do about it. Seventh, we see that the shepherd has authority. Verse 18, he says, I have authority to take it, lay my life down and authority to take it up again. He has authority. And this was given him by his father. This is something about the gospels that you just see. If you focus on authority and Christ's authority and you read the gospel of John or read the gospel of Matthew over and over and over again, everyone's shocked by Jesus. You remember in John 1, it says he came to his own, his own possession, his own stuff. This is all... This world and everyone in it is his. He has authority. Matthew 7, they're surprised at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority. So there's so many things I think about when I preach and when I teach. I want to make sure I cite the people that I'm quoting. I want to make sure that I don't misspeak the word of God, which you know I do frequently. Um, I don't want to mess up. I want to make sure that this comes across well. And Jesus never had to make any allowances for anything he said. They're shocked because he spoke as one who had authority. There's no, there's no subtitles. There's no, no asterisks by anything that he said. He had a complete authority. Everything he said was true. And then at Matthew 28, at the very end of his ministry, he acknowledges that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And then he tells his church to go. Using that authority, go. What authority he had. In John 1, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the word is authority in Greek, he gave the authority to become children of God. He decides who can be adopted in God's family and who can't. John 17, he says, Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. He has the authority to give eternal life. And here in John 10, He says that He has authority to lay His life down and authority to take it up again. He's talking about His crucifixion and His resurrection. He had authority. This is amazing. 
Christ is saying, I have authority to lay my life down and take it up. In other words, everything you read about in the last half of the Gospel of John and the last two or three chapters of every other Gospel about Christ dying, he had the authority to stop it. And yet what we see is it's all under his authority and he ordered it anyway because of his love for the Father and his love for his church. And because of that, Paul says in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our our shepherd has great authority. And despite that authority, as we alluded to, he lays his life down. He lays his life down for the sheep. He's the good shepherd. And the father, he says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay my life down that I might take it up again. He's not saying that the father doesn't love him if he doesn't. It's just this relationship is so solid. It's so true and sure. The father knows the son. The son knows the father. They have the same heart, the same mind although they're two different persons. And the Father loves him for his sacrifice, for his obedience. He had a shepherd's heart. He felt compassion for the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He died for his sheep. He said that if he had 99 sheep and lost one, he would leave the 99 to find the one. And then ultimately we see that he died for that one that he found. Our shepherd is the good shepherd. He leads them well. He will fight to the death to defend his own sheep. Truly, if you remember the sheep pen and the shepherd in the gate, the shepherd in the opening, we all have entered the sheep pen over the dead body of Jesus. All of us have. So what can we take from this besides all of these things being true? What can we take from these truths that that will comfort our lives, that will help us worship our Savior? Well, I think Psalm 23 certainly should be a great comfort because that's talking about our good shepherd. That if Yahweh is your shepherd, truly you don't need anything. You shall not want for anything. This means if you trust Christ alone for salvation, you don't need to worry about anything else. That's a simple truth, but it's it's so foundational for just living in this world. It's true. Jesus said, if I, Matthew 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. He says, look at the birds. Your heavenly father feeds them. They don't do anything. Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't work at all. And yet they're more beautiful than Solomon in all of his splendor. God takes care of these things that really mean nothing in the grand scheme of creation. How much more value are we than birds and than lilies? So don't be anxious about tomorrow, he says, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Well, how can you say that, Jesus? There's so much in my life right now that causes anxiety. Get close to the shepherd. Listen to the shepherd's voice. This is what Paul did. 
Paul in Romans 8 said, What will we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? No one can bring a charge against us. No one can condemn us. No one can separate us from our shepherd. No one can snatch us out of his hand. No tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. None of it. The truth is that we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And He has fully paid for all of our sins with His precious blood and set us free from the power of the devil. And He preserves us in such a way that without the will of our Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from our heads. Indeed, all things must work together for our salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also ensures us of eternal life and makes us heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. And if I were writing that, I would say, and to relax in Him, to rest. So follow your good shepherd. Know your good shepherd. Hear his voice today. All right, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for our shepherd, our shepherd who is close to us, our shepherd who protects us, our shepherd who leads us, our shepherd who, who scoops us up when we have fallen, when we're hurting or wounded and holds us close to his bosom. We thank you that we have a, a, such a shepherd to love and care for us, to lead and guide us, to protect us, but also a shepherd who we can follow, who we can look to and follow, who shows us not only the way, but the how, how to live, how to love, how to forgive, how to lead. Lord, we thank you that our shepherd is also one who was tempted in every way like we are yet without sin. And you have given us this good shepherd to be our example, to be our, our king. So help us to love him well and to love each other well, to appreciate the bride of Christ.